We've been in a series on fire and water. We've been in a series ultimately, truly just to help us navigate these moments of encounter, these moments of the presence of God coming and being with us and trying to understand what is God doing in these moments? How am I to respond to these moments? What are the things that I can look for when God comes like this? What do I do? And what is God doing? And as you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about when God shows up in fire, the revelatory power of his presence, it's not to leave us the same, it's to change us. So that what happens in here changes everything out there. The water flows out from the temple. It doesn't stay in the temple. In Moses, the story there was the revelation of the burning bush was intended to lead to the deliverance of God's peoples through the waters of the Red Sea. Where there's fire, there's water. Last week, it was the fire of God's power that proves God is our one provider, the one who ends the droughts in our lives. And tonight's message kind of takes a different turn, a little bit of a different perspective. The fire we're talking about tonight is the fire of God's judgment. The title of the message is From Judgment to Jesus. And we're going to be in the book of Revelation. So if you would turn with me to Revelation chapter 20 and then stand for the reading of the word, what we're going to do is we're going to read the last five verses of Revelation 20 and then the first seven verses of Revelation 21. This is Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 and then Revelation 21 verses 1 through 7. John is writing, the author of the book. He's having a vision. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And he sees this. Then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water life without payment. 
the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. God bless the reading of your word. Lord, let this form us and shape us in the way that we see you. Give us eyes, Lord, to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand what the spirit of the living God is saying to us here in this place. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. I don't know how much you know about the book of Revelation. I'll give you a little, a couple thoughts to frame it. I know it's not a book many people spend a whole lot of time in, or it's a book people spend a whole lot of time in. I don't know which is better or which is worse, but they're both probably fine. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. It's John's prophetic apocalyptic vision. We think this is John, the disciple that Jesus loved, who wrote the gospel of John. It could be another John, an elder in the church. But either way, John's revelation of Jesus gives him a picture of how things were and how things would be. And the word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis, which you know that word apocalypse. And when you hear apocalypse, you probably think of the end times. But that's actually not what that word means. An apocalypse means to uncover something or to make something fully known. Apocalyptic literature was a form of literature, and it's the style uh, John is writing in here. Apocalyptic literature would recount a prophet's symbolic dream or visions in a way that reveals God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present can be viewed in light of history's final outcome. So Revelation is an apocalypse. It's an uncovering of what will be. And we believe it is prophetic, which is to say it is the word of God spoken through a prophet to bring God's people comfort, usually in a time of need or of crisis. But it's also very much so a letter written to real people in real churches at a real point in time for a very real purpose. And those three things I think are critical to hold in tension with each other. And I don't think you can lose any one of them. Because if it's only a prophetic apocalypse, then what you will do is you will take none of it literally and look for symbolism in everything. And you will approach the book of Revelation as though it is a secret code to unlock the mystery of the end times. And you will start doing math as you read your Bible. And it's rarely a good idea, in my opinion, to do math when you're studying the Bible. Maybe sometimes, but... If it's a prophetic letter, we have prophetic letters that are the word of God spoken to a people, but it won't tell us anything about what will be. And if it's an apocalyptic letter, there's also a lot of those. They're usually manifestos. But if it's not from the word of God, then it doesn't carry weight that should shape how we see. So we need to understand it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic, and it's a real letter written for a real purpose. And the purpose was for the seven churches of Asia Minor that they would persevere in the face of persecution and difficulty and that they would remain faithful to Jesus. That's the purpose of this letter, that the people who received it would not decode the mysteries to the end times, but that they would be encouraged to persevere through difficulty and remain faithful to Jesus in the gospel. 
And the way that John does that is by pointing them to the future victory of the culmination of all things in God's new created heaven and newly created earth. And he points to the promise of what's to come to help strengthen the faith of those existing here and now in this moment. He points to some really good news to help them deal with some really bad news, which is the daily persecution. Specifically, the day of judgment that occurs before this great white throne. Now, I understand the day of judgment, the lake of fire, it's not exactly the most fun topic. Many of you do not come hoping for this message tonight. Um, And I understand that. This is the uncomfortable parts of theology. It's the uncomfortable texts of the Bible that we kind of like to maybe just gloss over and go back to the ones that make us feel great. But God's judgment is a critical piece of our faith. And you can't remove it and keep the rest of it in order. It has to be there. And so we, as Christians, have to wrestle with it. We have to deal with it, and we need to have a right theology about it. If for no other reason that sometimes you don't know how good the good news is until you realize how bad the bad news is, right? So a couple of examples that I thought were fun just to lighten the mood for a moment. If I tell you the good news that your brother is coming home and you're like, well, great, he was at work. So, I mean, that's fine. That's good news, but it's not really that good news. But if I tell you that your brother wasn't on an active duty deployment into a war zone and I tell you he's coming home, how many you know that bad news makes the good news so much better. If you get the good news, you're clear. And you hear that from your TSA agent saying you're clear to board. It's not life-changing news. It's fine. It's okay. It's good, I guess. But if it's your doctor who's reviewing a cancer screening, who says you're clear, how many of you know that bad news of being in the doctor for that makes that good news so much sweeter and so much better. All I'm trying to say is sometimes you need to know how bad the bad news is to gain an appreciation of how good the good news is. The book of Revelation is going to give us both. And before we can partake in the good news of the new heaven and the new earth and the culmination of the promise and the wedding feast of the lamb, we have to face the difficult news of this judgment that takes place. So before we get into the picture of paradise, I'm going to talk about three things, um, which I laugh because these have never been and may never be again my three points, but let's get into it anyways. We're going to talk about God's judgment, God's justice, and God's wrath. I feel like I need to pray again. (laughs) Let's talk about God's judgment. Um, I think it's really funny when people say only God can judge me. Uh, Y'all can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And I will admit, that's a very cool thing to say. Uh, If you've ever said it, you looked great saying it. Uh, I don't think anyone has ever looked bad saying, like, only God can judge me. It's like, whoa, this dude's ice cold. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. (laughs) Wow. He's just a rebel without. But the irony, of course, is in the context of the Bible when you go, like, only God can judge me. It's like, oh, and he will. (laughs) Oh, he will. He will. That's the picture we have in Revelation 20. There's this incredibly massive, beautiful, great white throne. God seated on it. And before him, all who have died come and stand before the throne of God. And then a series of books are brought out. Speaks to only maybe two. I think it's a lot more because most of those books hold within them the deeds of man. 
Every thought, every action, every decision that man has made. And if that fits in one book, I'd be surprised. So I think it's, I think it's, many, I think it's many books. And these books are used then as the basis upon which each man is judged. We know this from Romans 2, verse 6 through 8, Paul writing to the church in Rome, the churches in Rome. He says, he, speaking of the Lord, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So every man and woman stands before the throne and the books recording the deeds of man are opened and they are weighed against the holiness of God. But there's another book that's brought out. Amen. It's the book of life. In Revelation 13, we hear of the book of life and it's described in this moment, um, specifically speaking about people who are absent from the book. Um, which will make sense when we read the scripture. So it's talking about those who end up actually worshiping the beast. We don't have time for the beast tonight. Just know the beast is not God. The beast is bad. And it says this in Revelation 13. It says, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. The book of life belongs to the lamb who was slain. And the names in this book are those who have been redeemed by the sacrificed lamb, by the lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. He has a book, a book of life. And we know that that lamb was Jesus. John the Baptist says so in John 1, 29. John the Baptist for the first time, who is the prophet messenger who will announce the arrival of the Messiah, sees Jesus for the first time in John 1, 29. And it says the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So those who have been redeemed or bought back, purchased back by the blood of the Lamb, have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. But those who are not in the book of life, it says, are judged according to what they had done. And in verse 15, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture refers to this as the second death. The first death is the natural death. The second death is the spiritual death. Both of them are eternal. Everybody goes through the first death. Not everybody goes through the second death. So who decides whether you go through the second death? This brings us back to the image of the great white throne and all of mankind standing before God, making judgments depending on which name, which book your name was written in. And as you stand before God, you have two options. You can give an account before God according to your own deeds. You can have every thought and every action and every decision weighed before him. And if all of them are perfect and holy and sinless, you may be able to enter eternity. I actually don't know. So that's why I say you might be able to. But you can do that. But if any of those things are sin, then the justice of God will require that debt to be paid. And you will be the one who has to pay it. Or there's another option. 
which is that you can have Jesus stand on your behalf and give an account for you. And he can stand before God and say, measure my life instead of his. Look at my righteousness, not his. Look at my deeds, not hers. Judge me, don't judge them. I can vouch for them, for their name is in my book. And they're coming with with me. On the day of judgment, God will determine whether your eternity is spent in the lake of fire or in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's just stop, step back for a second, and I want us to just ask us a couple of questions about this text, and I want us to pick this apart because I think it's going to give us a better view of what all of this means and why it's important for us and why we don't need to be afraid of it. And I hope in this you don't walk away afraid unless it is standing in the fear of the Almighty Lord who you want to repent before and turn to. And that would be a good response. But we do not need to be afraid of this. So why does God have to judge us in the first place? A lot of us have a very negative connotation of judgment. In our culture, don't judge people. We teach our children, don't be judgmental. Don't judge people. Let them live their truth. Let them live their life. You don't know. Be open-minded. Don't judge. That's like, a, that's like a banner. Like all of us are, yeah, that's wrong. We shouldn't judge. Like just be cool, man. Don't judge people. Leave them alone. And actually before I go, I would just say our position is that as a Christian, I can't judge your salvation. Only God can judge that. So people ask me if I'm going to heaven or hell. I go, I actually don't know. I can give you some markers that might give you a better indication, but the Lord is the only one who knows your heart. So I can't judge your salvation, but I can absolutely judge your deeds, especially if you're a disciple of Jesus and a member of this church community. In fact, we, we have an obligation as believers to help each other verify and validate the decisions and the choices that we're making. And there, and there is a place for that type of judgment, not being judgmental, not rejecting people because we have judged them unworthy, but to help them weigh and measure decisions and actions that they take and whether they align to God's word and God's will for their life. What the Bible says is that you should not judge somebody according to a measure you yourself don't want to be judged against. That's what it says for us. So that's why we measure only according to the word of God and by the grace of Jesus. So, so what does God have to judge us? And I think it's a very important question, and I think it's very important for us to answer this. And I think it has to do with God's role and God's character. God is the arbiter over all of creation. He's the ultimate authority. As the one who created it, he is responsible for it, and he actively governs over it. So God is then responsible. He has a role to play in judging the merit and the value of what happens in the earth. This is his responsibility. As the one who made it, he's responsible for it. And his character is such that he is perfectly just. He's utterly committed to being morally right and fair. Actually goes, it actually goes further than that. He's not just committed to it. He's unable to be anything else. God cannot be unjust. He must be judged. We talked about it a lot last week. I am what I am. I always will be what I always will be. God is just. He is always just. He is never 
unjust. He's a God of justice. Isaiah 30, 18 says, for the Lord is a God of justice. Psalm 33, 5 says, he loves righteousness and justice. And what does the Lord require of us who are made in his image? But what Micah 6, 8 says, to do justice. God is a God of justice. We are to be a people of justice as well. So God cannot allow injustice. doesn't stand for it. In fact, he cannot stand for it. Wrong things must be made right. And this is a topic that's really interesting to me because we have a negative connotation of judgment. Many people fear the judgment of God. Many people look at that as being unloving or unfair or cruel that God would judge and make decisions based on our actions. And there's you know, a chorus of people that feel that way and say that in, um, to antagonize Christianity, to say that that is not a very good religion because God's judgment is, is, is unloving. It's cruel. But many times those same people also have this issue with why bad things happen to good people. And why does a good God allow suffering in the world? And when I hear those, I hear that sounds like a cry for God's justice. That sounds like what you want more than anything else is for God to behave morally and rightly and make decisions about what happens in the earth and then intervene. So do we desire God's justice or do we not desire it? Because you can't have it both ways. If you want it, you're going to get the whole thing. And if you don't want it, we will be lost without it. And what's difficult, I understand, is that we all experience injustice in our lives all the time. We witness it almost on the daily. Morally wrong people prosper and seemingly get away with it. It's true. It happens. Bad things do happen to good people. Absolutely. People and systems are unjust and they are corrupt. Yes. Yes. But the thing is, God will allow that for now, but not forever. And just because it hasn't been dealt with yet doesn't mean it won't be dealt with because there is going to be a day of judgment and all, all will stand and give an account for their deeds. Now, if you're asking, why doesn't God deal with those things now, though? Why do we have to wait for eternity whenever that's going to be this day of judgment? Like, why doesn't he do something now? Why hasn't God acted now? And I would say, I think actually he has. What God has done is he has formed a people in his image, imbibed them with his values, given them his word, and called them to be the salt and life of the earth to carry God's will into those places. So if you're wondering, what has God done to combat injustice? He saved you. That you would be his answer in the earth. Listen, God almost always uses people to accomplish his will. Too many of us go, God, you do it. And God's going, I got you to do it. God is a God of delegation. Bless the Lord. (laughs) So the next question I want to ask is then this. So if that's why God has to judge it, why can't he just overlook it? Like, why can't he just forgive us and let it go? Why does it have to be this whole big thing? Why can't he just overlook our sin? I thought that was the whole point of the gospel. He just overlooks it, right? 
And the answer to that is simple. Um, that's not justice. Someone broke into your house, ransacked your things, left it a mess, stole your most prized possessions and that which was valuable to you, family heirlooms and the like, smashed your big screen, took your PlayStation 5, whatever your things are, they came into your house and they violated your, the place where you reside. And you got them on camera. Like you got the ring, you got the whole security system, you got the ring on the front door, you got the nest in the house. Like you've got them dead to rights. And they stand before you in court or before the judge in court. And the judge says, make a defense for yourself. We've got all the evidence. We've got fingerprints. We've got it all. Give a defense. And if that person who broke into your house goes like, come on, judge, just be cool about it. Can't you... Like, I made a mistake, man. Just forgive me and overlook it. Let's just make it go away. And if the judge is like, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's all good. You're free. Everything's fine. Just get out of here. You don't really like that. We, why? Because that's not justice. You have been violated. Something has been taken from you. It needs to be repaid in some way. There needs to be a consequence to the action. We have an internal instinctive desire for justice and, re- and we are repelled by injustice. We reject it just, just off the jump. So it's right for God to judge us because sin demands a response. God is the arbiter of the created order and his character is one who is perfectly just, which demands that he deal with all injustice accordingly. All right, let's keep asking questions. Fine, he has to deal with it. Why does he have to be so cruel about it? Why does God have to deal with sin so severely? Why are the wages of sin death anyways? Like that seems like a price that's too high to pay. And here we need to talk about God's wrath. Because deep down, the cry of our heart when we see injustice and sin in the world is we say, God, do something about it. God, intervene. Make it right. Like, get them. Fix it. And the reality is, he will. He will do something about it. He will deal with it. And he won't deal with it kindly. Because God is also a God of wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John 3.36, this is the end of John 3. John 3.16, beautiful. John 3.36, the end of the chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Just the other day, might have been today actually, my oldest son Logan was, I don't know, talking about something and he goes, I hate that. If you're a parent, what is the first thing you say? Don't say hate. It's a strong word. Say I dislike it. I don't want it. Could I have a, right? If we have this instant where he said, don't say hate. Hate's a strong word. Hate is a strong word. It's a very strong word. And God hates sin. He hates it. And as a result, the wrath of God 
is poured out on ungodliness and unrighteousness. And hear me so clearly on this and press in and listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. That's not because God is mean. That's not because God is angry. It's not because God is vindictive. It is because God is love. The wrath of God is a result of the love of God. The most severe anger that I have ever felt, I wouldn't even say it's been wrath. I'm a pretty mellow guy. But the most severe anger I have felt has only ever been when the people I love the most are treated the worst. You got an issue with me? That's fine. We'll handle it. I can handle myself. Not a problem. You got words for my wife? You threaten my son? The emotions that rise push me back past self-control. You understand? This is why the movie Taken made sense. (laughs) You do something to my child, you get the full Liam Neeson, right? (laughs) Why? Because of the love for the child, for the care for the family. It is a result of the love of God that he shows wrath towards sin. God hates sin because sin threatens the life of those he loves. And so God is committed to having Satan's sin and death dealt with completely and eternally. He wants it gone forever. So there is a wrath that God has towards sin and ungodliness. He must judge it. He must do it justly. And he must deal with it permanently and decisively. For God will separate us from all evil and unrighteousness because those are the things that threaten our very existence and our fellowship with him. So God removes at the throne of judgment all evil and injustice and sin and he casts them into the lake of fire. Now, whether lake of fire is a literal lake of fire or not, I'm not sure. There's different thinking on it. But what I do know for sure, that whatever it represents, it absolutely represents an eternal separation from God, from his presence, and from his people. I actually don't think hell was God's idea. If you look through the scripture, you never see heaven and hell together in the same sentence. We have made Christianity about where do you end up? Do you get to heaven or do you get to hell? That's what we, the the narrative we have written with our view of almost like a works-based, kind of that's our natural instinct as we kind of go like, am I good enough or am I bad enough? Some of you who are saved today, your name is in the Lamb's book of life are going like, well, am I good enough or am I bad enough? And, And you're missing it, but we'll talk about that in a second. The biblical narrative is not about heaven versus hell. The biblical narrative is about heaven and earth. You see those two things together in scripture all the time because that was God's idea. That was the original design. That was what God originally created in the garden of Eden. This place where heaven, God's place and earth, our place overlapped. 
And in the garden was the fullness of the presence of God, our dwelling, our humanity, our life, our fellowship with him, freedom in his presence, and all that is good and beautiful that comes from dwelling with the Lord every day of our lives. It talks about how they walked with God in the cool of the day. This is the vision. That was God's idea. Heaven and earth would overlap. God's original plan was not, let me create humans and see which ones are good enough to spend eternity with me and the rest I'll get rid of and send them to hell. Please don't ever reduce your faith to a scorecard that says, am I good enough? Have I behaved well enough to get into God's presence or to be with him? It's not about that. And thank God too, because you could never do that. That's an unattainable Goal. So there has to be another solution to the problem. And God has designed all of creation around being with you, dwelling with you, and you dwelling with Him. And so what's true about God is that He wants to be with you. And what's also true about God is that He will not force you to be with Him, He will let you choose. And he will give you, hear me, he will give you what you most deeply desire. And if you desire him, you will get him for all of eternity. In paradise forever. Back in the garden the way that it was designed. But if you reject him and do not desire him, he will honor that decision. And he will allow you to spend all of eternity out of his presence and away from him. I believe that's where hell is. One of our every nation pastors described hell like this. He said he believes that mankind carries hell in their heart. For God's design was not an eternal separation, but man has chosen it. We have chosen to worship the creation and not the creator. We have chosen the pleasures of this earth over the pleasures of paradise forever with him. And in so doing, we have rejected him and chosen the way of sin and death and destruction. And that's not what God wants from us. But he does give you the choice. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life have made a declaration that they desire life with God above everything else, that they trust in Jesus. Like it says in Romans 10, 13, that they have called upon the name of the Lord for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those in the Lamb's book have repented and believed in Christ for their salvation. And on the day of judgment, Jesus stands in their place and gives an account on their behalf. And at that day of judgment, before the great white throne, where all men stand to give an account, those who carry resentment towards God, those who have rejected him, those who carry evil in their hearts towards him, who carry sin, God will judge it justly. And he will deal with it permanently. And the picture that we have is God removing from the earth 
All who have rejected him and carry sin in their hearts toward him. Those who carry hell in their hearts, he removes them. And what do you get when all of hell is removed out of earth? When the fullness of God's judgment, when the fullness of God's eradication of sin, when it is completely finished, sin, Satan, death, and the grave are conquered and removed from the earth, what do you get? You get Revelation 21 verse 1. After that, I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth. And I want you to catch a contrast between what is and what will be, because the current earth is described in Romans 8 like this. Paul writing again, he says, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is groaning. Life is hard. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. But it's the present pain that points to a future Glory. One commentator said it like this, and I want to read you to it because he said it so well. He says, it's remarkable that John's picture of the final age to come focuses not on a platonic ideal heaven or a distant paradise, but on the reality of a new heaven and a new earth. For God originally created in heaven and earth to be the permanent home of human beings. But sin and death entered the world and transformed the earth into a place of rebellion and alienation. It became enemy-occupied territory. But God has been working in salvation history to effect a total reversal of this evil consequence and to liberate earth and heaven from the bondage to sin and corruption. The plan for your eternity was not to see if you became good enough to get to heaven or to see if you were bad enough that God would send you to hell. God doesn't send you to hell. He respects your choice to go there. The plan, God's plan for eternity was for God to fully redeem heaven and earth and reunite them as it was in the Garden of Eden. To bring back in the final days what he created in the first days. And when he does, the picture that John sees as he stares into the endless beauty of the full renewal of the entire created order is more than creation being remade. What he sees reminds him of a wedding. He sees the marriage of heaven and earth. The first heaven and the first earth passing away, a new heaven and a new earth ready to be joined together. And then he sees this redeemed and holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I want to describe this to you. And we're going to close after this. And I want you to just allow God to give you a vision for what this is going to be like. So whether you need to close your eyes or put your phone away or close your notes for a second, put your pen down. This is the vision of what all of this 
is heading towards. This is what John sees. Descending out of the heavens, a brilliant and golden city. It's bright. It's beautiful. It's the city of God. His holy habitation. The place where the fullness of his glory and his presence reside. It shines brighter than the sun. It's a light that illuminates and warms, but it does not harm the eye or burn the skin. It's brilliant. It is glory. It is holy. It is like a bride on her wedding day. It's meticulously prepared. The streets are clean. The paint lines are sharp. The flowers are in full bloom. The windows of the city streets are dressed. Everything is in its proper place. Bright and pure, she stands before him, holy and set apart. The lengths to which the city has been prepared and made beautiful make known one holy and glorious truth. A truth that now resounds from a voice from the heavens. A loud voice that rumbles like the sounds of many waters saying the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The transcendent dwelling place of God descends out of the heavens to take up residence on the earth. And the presence that we have tasted only in glimpses and only in moments, only ever so often and never long enough, we now experience in full measure for now and for all eternity. For so long we looked at him through a veil able to see some, but not all of his face. But now in this moment, the veil is lifted and we are able to gaze upon him fully, to see him completely and exactly and truly as he is. And we will spend every day in his presence, every hour with our God, every second looking upon the beauty of his face and his holy creation. And all the pain and the loss and the heartbreak of our pasts will be gone. Every regret and every sadness will be no more. For the hand of the bridegroom reaches out and wipes away every tear from your eye. For with him there will never be another reason to cry. Never another sleepless night. Never the fear of failure or the rejection or of this moment ending. For in this place, there is no more depression and no more anxiety and no more fear and no more insecurity. In this place, there is no more death. It's been defeated. There is no mourning for the joy is constant. There will be no pain or discomfort for all has been restored. For in this place, everything that we once knew to be true has passed away. Every anxious thought is gone. Every impure desire removed. Every affliction and pain healed. 
For in this place, where heaven and earth are wed together, all former things have passed away. In this place, where God and man are finally joined, the darkness of sin has been removed. In this place, in his presence, where creator and creation live in harmony, there will not be a whiff, no, not even a fragrance of regret or of shame or of guilt. For in this place, in his glorious presence, all things are made new. Even you. And the Lord looks at his bride. He looks at you and he says, I'm not making a better version of you. I am remaking you. And here in my presence, the old has gone. Behold, the new has come for I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the alpha and the omega, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn among the dead. I hold all things together in my hand and I have reconciled all things together by my blood. For eternity, we get to gaze upon the goodness and the glory of our God. And what response do we give? But perhaps one penned thousands of years earlier by psalmists who wrote in part and not in whole. Who wrote, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And to those who thirst for this life, who thirst for this experience to dwell fully in the house of the Lord for all of their days. The voice of heaven continues and says to you, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. For in Revelation 22, you see a picture of the throne of God and flowing from it is a river, a river of living water, bright as crystal. It flows through the middle of the streets of the new Jerusalem. And on either side, trees of life spring up. They yield life-giving fruit with leaves that bring about the healing of the nations. And what was glimpsed by Ezekiel is now fulfilled for all of eternity. And the Lord says to you who have conquered, you will have this heritage. I will be your God. You will be my son. This is the picture of eternity. The image of what is to come for those who call upon the name of Jesus to be their Lord and to be their Savior. To those who embrace Jesus, who persevere through the trial and the difficulty of this life, 
to those who run their race with endurance, who keep the faith, who receive the love of the Father. They receive the inheritance of eternity in his presence. And it is the fire of God's judgment that boldly contrasts and makes beautiful and makes presence the eternal living waters that flow from his temple. And what we experience here is but a foretaste. It is but a glimpse. It is but an image of the fullness that we will enjoy for all eternity. For an endless amount of days, we will stand in the presence of our God and we will experience the fullness of his beauty, of his grace, and of his love. And every bad thought, every traumatic moment, Every injury and every wound will have passed. And what will remain will be glorious and beautiful and holy and good. This is the inheritance for those who put their faith entirely on Jesus. Lord, we stand in awe before your goodness. We are humbled to have a gift this good be offered to us. the deepest desires of our heart is just to be with you. And you put that there so that we would have a longing and a drawing to return to you so that we could experience the fullness of that which we desire in eternity. If anybody now needs to repent and turn to God, now is the time and you pray in your heart with conviction and with faith Father forgive me I am a sinner and I need a savior and I receive Jesus' death on the cross as the sacrifice that pays the debt for my sin I call him Lord of my life and Savior of my soul. And from this day forward, I live my life following him. God, I can't stand on account of my own deeds. And I thank you for making a way that I don't have to. I thank you, God, for this. In this moment, you are writing my name in the Lamb's book of life that I might get to experience the treasure of your presence for all eternity.